Welcome, dear listeners, to Wisdom of Crowds. This week, we were honored to have Fiona Hill, the Robert Bosch Senior Fellow on the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institute, join us on the podcast. Her new book, There's Nothing for You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century, is a must-read. It has jaw-dropping details of goings-on inside the Trump White House, but is also a damning indictment of the wages that political polarization has wrought on our society. She's absolutely scathing on Russiagate, for example. It's also a memoir of growing up poor in the north of England and a rumination of what can be done to build bridges across a widening chasm in our society. We had a great conversation. We hope you'll consider becoming a subscriber to Wisdom of Crowds. Apart from bonus episodes of the podcast, Shadi and I take turns writing essays every Friday that are also for paying members only. If you're interested in subscribing, head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. We hope you enjoy. Yeah. So, um, well, I guess let's get started. Sure. Um, welcome, Fiona. Um, maybe, uh, well, first of all, I want to say that I, I love this book because it's ambitious. It's a couple different books in one, and they all cohere together. In one sense, it's a memoir of growing up, your formative years in the UK and afterwards. It's a recounting of your two very interesting, tumultuous years as deputy assistant to President Trump and senior director for Russia uh, on the National Security Council. And then it's also a policy book where you kind of offer your own vision of where the U.S. can or or let's say should go. Um, and it's interesting for me because like we uh, listeners may know that um, Fiona is currently at Brookings. I'm currently at Brookings. We're colleagues. Before before COVID, we used to you know see each other at receptions, at talks, um, in the hallways every now and then. But it was interesting reading this book because I felt by the end of it that I knew you better than I know Demir, and Demir is one of my best <laughs> friends. So, so I know your life story now in a way that is is quite rare. Um, so maybe, but maybe um, I'm curious, like if we're talking about life stories, maybe I just want to start off with a bigger question about knowing, you know, knowing what you know now, would you have taken the job with Trump when you were offered it in 2017? When you think about the alternative trajectories that your life could have taken, if you didn't, if you said no to that job offer, your life would have been very different um, right now. Um, it's in the first couple of pages, you mentioned that there's a kind of Fiona uh, Hill fan club where people have T-shirts with your face on it. But also, to my surprise, candles, Fiona Hill candles. Yeah. <laughs> and and you make light of this. And the prologue in your book is titled The Improbable Fiona Hill, that you didn't want to be in the limelight. You wanted to serve your country. You wanted to work on the issues that you care about. And then you found yourself in this almost accidental, surprising way um, almost a household name during the whole impeachment situation with Donald Trump. So maybe just tell us, like, how, would you have would you have done it in, in a would you have done it the same way, knowing what you know now? Well, I would still have gone in because the motivation to join the administration was really to tackle the Russia crisis. Because in 2016, the Russians had intervened in the election. It was a pretty sophisticated political influence operation of the kind, you know, we'd actually seen during the Cold War, but obviously with much greater impact and import because they were able to use social media platforms and all kinds of other entry points into the American body politic that would have been inconceivable you know, for Russian operatives back in the 50s or 60s or 70s, for example. 
And I had been previously the National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council from 2006 to 2009 before coming back to Brookings. I'd been loaned out by Brookings. And that job meant that I was coordinating all the analysis, um, you know, the sort of finished intelligence from across all of the US government agencies. It was a pretty responsible job. I got a lot of insight into how government worked. Yeah, so I mean, in that that job at the National Intelligence Council, you know, basically putting together all the all, all source material for briefing people like the president, cabinet level, you know, uh, officials, and you know, people who later were well, the kind of people like myself later on, you know, the, the senior directors of the NSC. You know, we were already there, very much focused on some of the challenges that Russia was going to pose for the United States. I was there during the time that um, the Russians invaded Georgia. Uh, there were so many, uh, so many different events and incidents, then, and a lot of evidence that, of course, the R- Russians were ratcheting up a more aggressive foreign policy in that period. After you know, kind of a, a time frame when Vladimir Putin, as president and then prime minister of uh, Russia, had been much more focused on domestic renewal, but that was a kind of the inflection point. And when I went back to Brookings, I wrote a book about uh, Vladimir Putin with another Brookings colleague, very much focused on trying to figure out what made this guy tick, because it's evident we didn't really know enough about him. So by the time 2016 comes along, I've got all of this long tail of experience. And it's evident that we're really in a pretty dangerous and difficult situation. Uh, We'd been on the verge of confrontation with the Russians behind the scenes. And now this decision by the security services and the Kremlin to interfere in the presidential election was obviously ratcheting things up to a whole new level. So I wanted to go back into government uh, when that opportunity came uh, my way. And it's a strange opportunity because I certainly wasn't seeking it out. It happened that people who I knew from either writing the book on Putin in the in the media, like Katie McFarland, who'd been a commentator on Fox News, who was then the Deputy National Security Advisor, and then a host of people I'd worked with when I was at the National Intelligence Council, including General Flynn, who had been my counterpart on the Joint Chiefs, but I hadn't had any contact really with him in the time since I'd left. They all remembered me and wanted me to, you know, come in and try to help alongside other people that I'd worked with previously behind the scenes. And the whole thinking was, of course, we had to do something about this, push it back and make sure that this didn't happen again. It was really addressing a national security crisis. It's the other bits of things that I would have done differently in retrospect, knowing what I know now, I would have been much more attentive to the domestic US political dynamics. And I would have done a lot more due diligence on just exactly who was there in the White House and who was around it than I did. You know, I've said in public before I knew more about the Kremlin than I did about, you know, kind of West Wing politics. And it was absolutely true. I mean, I'd observed the directions that General Flynn had taken with some alarm. I mean, it seemed like a completely different person from the person that I'd worked with. But then by the time I got in, he'd been dismissed um, for all the reasons that people know about. And the new national security advisor then was General McMaster, H.R. McMaster, who was somebody, Shadi and Demi, you probably met him as well from, you know, his work as, you know, really strategic thinker in the military, still in the uniformed military, but, you know, was a frequent commentator and uh, main speaker, keynote speaker at conferences that I'd attended. But, you know, I didn't really know him very well. But it was very clear that he was very focused on the mission as well of, you know, trying to figure out how to deal with the national security challenges that the US was facing. So I kind of thought that, you know, behind the scenes with a group of people 
you know, mostly not household names at all. And the people that I knew that were spread out there across the government, that it would be possible to really focus on these critical issues and get something done. And I would just say a couple of weeks in, it was evident that that was not going to be very easy, to say the least. And of course, as time went on, it was proven to be impossible. And I do realise, you know, kind of, I realised in real time that I needed to be much more savvy about the people I was actually dealing with on a day-to-day basis in and around the White House, not the professional uh, staff. The uh, or even some of the po- politi- political figures, you know, who'd been, you know, in, in more conventional Republican circles, but, you know, all the people that we're <laughs> now household names in not great ways. Today. Yeah, because uh, some of the some of the scenes from the the Oval Office in your first couple of months are just remarkable. I mean, I think we've all read various you know memoirs and accounts of what went on in the Trump White House, but every new detail, you're still thinking to yourself, "Wait, that actually really happened." And you found yourself in a kind of funny, but also it wasn't a great situation for you, where you talk about. Uh, forgetting dress shoes, so you were wearing sneakers in the Oval Office, and you tried to, I think, hide your shoes from Donald Trump, but Ivanka ended up sitting right next to you on the couch, and she gave you a look when she saw your sneakers. Yeah, I mean, there was lots of moments, which, you know, I also wanted to bring out in the book, where it was like theatre of the absurd, and, you know, something comedic. It was kind of basically like, you know, with these spoofs of politics, like a parody you know, so sometimes I have to keep pinching myself because, as you say, you know, is this real? Um, you know, you couldn't really script this in the way that some of the things were unfolding. Um, you know, you, you'd have a hard time figuring out whether you were in a sitcom you know, <laughs> or, a, or a dramatic series. But there was that whole um, atmosphere of reality TV at all times. I, what's, <clears throat> what's striking... Um... I think it comes through in the book is, I mean, you alluded to it just now. It's this, uh, you know, feeling like you you didn't understand the dynamics inside uh, the Oval Office and sort of domestic politics or the sort of bare knuckled partisan politics, as well as you understood uh, foreign policy stuff. I mean, maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, uh, clearly you felt like you had a mission that you needed to, you know, tackle the Russia problem. That was your your uh, abiding focus. Um did you at the same time – how do I put this? I think there was a, there's a narrative that emerged for us on the outside watching that you know the adults had gone in to try and sort of also keep the country on course. How much did, did – I mean I, I guess that didn't really play in your mind. But in the course of this, as you're constantly overcome and dealing with uh, President Trump and his sort of you know, uh, very impulsive ways – does it does it dawn on you that that uh, you know does the frustration overcome you and you say I'm really wasting my time at what point in the in the in the period that you were in there that it that it finally snap you wrote that you you went in with an idea of doing two years um, was there any point before that that you were ready to just go and something kept you in well the two years idea came from you know somebody that um, you know you guys know very well as uh, as well Martin Indick who, you know, a former colleague from Brookings, who had gone into the government as the special envoy, you know, for the Israel-Palestinian uh, negotiations, um, which anyone like yourselves who's been looking at the, uh, the Middle East knows is a fairly futile exercise in even the best of times. And Martin, I'd been very struck by his decision because he himself had said that um, he only thought that he had a 6% chance of success 
And um, some people said, well, that's a bit of a high percentage. <laughs> Maybe he's you know, deluding himself. You know, for most people, that would think that that was a, a 94 percentage chance of failure. That's pretty high. So um, Martin had uh, cautioned me you know, before going in. He actually encouraged me along with many others that I should really do this for the reasons that I laid out. But his main point was don't be part of a problem. Only stay around if you think you can be part of a solution. So the other uh, point to make is that my portfolio was actually pretty large. It wasn't just Russia. It was also all of Europe. Those two things have been divided out now in the Biden administration and have been divided out previously. But they'd put those all together and I had run um, at the Brookings Institute, the Centre for the US and Europe. So I'd covered all of that portfolio, you know, for seven years before I'd gone in. And, you know, parts of the issues were, you know, trying to keep the NATO alliance together, focused also on Turkey. Uh, you know, the, the whole war in Syria is raging and Turkey is as much of an issue in Syria as Russia is. Um, you know, Russia's become part of the Middle East. Uh, uh, that portfolio at that particular point, we were having re really difficult relationships with our allies. And so for a long time, perhaps it wasn't being part of a solution, but it was kind of, and I described this in the book, it was like basically putting out fires, putting out incendiary devices before things explode. And someone ha kind of had to do that. Um, and the image that always was coming into my head was my uh, maternal grandfather, somebody I'd actually never met because he died young of cancer. But I was always hearing the stories about how it, during World War Two, he had become a fire warden in the, um, during the air raids. And his job then was to run around with a bucket of sand and a little kind of hose um, thing. It looks like a little bit of kind of bicycle pump of water to put out the incendiary devices that German reconnaissance aircraft would drop over his hometown, which was the location of the biggest chemical factory in Europe. Imperial chemical industry, even the name sounds dramatic, <laughs> imperial chemical industry. And of course, if that uh, chemical works had gone up, what an incredible disaster. But his job was fairly mundane and prosaic. I mean, a bucket of sand, <laughs> a little pot of water, and then these incendiary devices so that the big bombers couldn't come in behind and blow things up. And that's kind of how I felt at all times. And I felt like, wow, this is, it obviously was not glamorous. It wasn't what I intended to be doing when I got in there. But it was better than having the huge explosions because all of our relationships were teetering around. But, you know, as I got to the end of that two years that I'd, I'd given myself the advice of, uh, of Martin and many others, the whole idea had been get out before the campaign starts, see what you can do, but do not get you know, embroiled in the domestic politics. Of course, I realised at the very beginning of 2019 well, the domestic politics had not gone away. They'd not been, you know, there was no pause, you know, with the campaign. And in fact, it was all ratcheting back up again. And this is the period that it becomes very clear that something nefarious is going on on US-Ukraine policy. And it becomes clear that it's all tied in to Trump trying to get himself re-elected and to stay indefinitely, perhaps even in power. That Because at that point, he's already making uh, comments to other world leaders about, hmm, sounds good, being able to stay in power indefinitely. How do you do that kind of thing? You know, making quips with people like Erdogan and others. You know, he's obviously fascinated by the guys who just sort of stay in there, the kings of Saudi Arabia and, you know, the leaders of the Emirates, you know, for example. He has an unhealthy fascination with autocrats that's already become very apparent. It's not just about Vladimir Putin that, you know, everybody thinks about when they look at that. So, you know, it was already becoming apparent that this isn't good and I really should wrap things up to get out of there. and I, But I want to hand it off in a meaningful way to others who can, you know, kind of carry the torch, you know, keep on going or in the way, carry the bucket of sand. 
<laughs> whatever the you know, metaphor is. We don't want the torch. We don't want things on fire, but the bucket of sand to extinguish the flames of you know potential relationships exploding. I mean, you know, NATO and that alliance was teetering on the edge as well. Well, you mentioned that it got darker over time, and we'll get to that. But before before that. Was there anything that, looking back, you actually liked about Trump that you found ultimately redeeming? There are a couple points in the book where there's almost a kind of a, a grudging respect for very narrow things that he maybe focused on that others didn't. But um, I'd just be curious, because maybe he created jobs. You do mention that on certain economic issues – um, his record was actually a little bit more positive than maybe people assume. But in terms of his personality or any of his instincts, was there anything that you saw there that could be described as good or positive? Well, look, if Trump had been a different person in terms of his personality, not a narcissist, and actually somebody who really was putting America first and the base of his voters, steel workers, coal miners, you know, you name it first, we'd have been in a very different position because he clearly um, has a gift for connecting with people. I mean, that may you know seem a bit strange for a lot of people in DC, but you know, when you watch him with crowds and with individuals, he's got charisma, he has charm, he's funny, he's a showman, he's entertaining. You know, he, he has a knack for slogans and for saying things that, you know, kind of maybe should be shocking to people, but also they relate to. And, you know, if he had put that to a different purpose other than his own personal interests, we'd be in a different place, obviously. And if he hadn't been somebody, you know, who wanted to stay in power indefinitely and, you know, turn the country into an extension of his own personal private family business, then, you know, all of those evident gifts that he had at communication, I mean, again, communication with, you know, a larger group of the, the population who were feeling that people were ignoring them, disrespecting them, you know, basically not attentive at all to their grievances, this would be, you know, a very different uh, situation. But it's not because there are so many flaws in his personality that those qualities that enabled him to connect with people uh, were completely overshadowed. I mean, he had, uh, you know, a strategic, um, tactical, but well, maybe I would just say on the strategic side, there was a lot lacking. But on the tactical side, there was real brilliance. You know, the use of Twitter, uh, the use of direct communications, the constant use of rallies. But of course, he was always campaigning. This wasn't, you know, a rally to mobilise people be behind a particular policy effort. It was, it was more of a continuous beauty and popularity context about, contest about him. I mean, really, we were becoming almost a kind of a plebiscitary democracy, uh, you know, with everything being a referendum and a popularity poll on Trump, but without any kind of public policy there. But he also was very good at putting a harsh spotlight on a lot of issues that we needed to really take a long, hard look at. The forever wars in Afghanistan and Syria, why are we doing all of this? What's the nature of a lot of our alliances and relationships? You know, why is it still the same as it was, you know, decades ago? Why have things not moved on? It's just then he never gave anyone the time or space to actually come up with a coherent response because he was on to the next thing. What's striking to me reading about this, um, again, I, it, you know, as Shadi said, we've all been reading about Trump. And I mean, he's been just sort of in our heads for, for four years with all that that Twitter usage and, and the rest of it. It's it's overwhelming. And it's sort of it's a strange feeling to now be looking at it back, uh, even though, you know, a lot of discussion now that Trump is not our history, but really there's a, a looming threat. And we can get to that as well. But what struck me, um, again, to get at this question of, of you know, um, 
internal politics versus you know foreign policy and how these things interact and, and the things you found surprising. I kept thinking back to to the differences of you know what I had read about Richard Nixon on the on the other hand, um, and the thing that's striking about Trump is this. Well, certainly the fragility of ego is there in Nixon as well, but there's a kind of discipline in Nixon that he is constantly – he has an idea about what he wants for the country, whereas in Trump, the fragility, it's all through him somehow, which leads to him being such a failure, right? I mean, I guess the question I want to ask you on that is, is you know, what's the, the – maybe the, the way to think about it is what's the danger? What do we learn from Trump that you know a more successful Trump – could have done um, differently to have led to different kind of outcomes, you know, having seen him up close? Well, if we took away, you know, the character flaws and, you know, some of, uh, and obviously this whole desire to become essentially an autocrat and, you know, stay in power indefinitely, you know, there were certain things that he did want to do, um, you know, on the foreign policy front. He was really focused on trying to wrap up, as he saw it, a lot of the arms control and the nuclear threats. Uh, there was actually a continuity of thinking, although it was never very clearly articulated, between trying to get an arms control agreement with Russia, finishing up the unfinished business as he saw it from the US's dealings with the Soviet Union in the late 1980s, to um, really trying to persuade Kim Jong-un and uh, North Korea to you know, get rid of uh, their uh, nuclear weapons that they were developing, or at least defang them and you know make them somewhat meaningless. And I don't think he got a lot of credit for what he did there with uh, Kim Jong Un, because again, it always just seemed like more of a performance. But in actual fact, he did head off a rather dangerous trajectory that we were finding ourselves on, in which Kim Jong Un um, was you know getting ever more uh, keen, it seemed, on uh, le- basically launching missiles closer and closer to the American uh, territory with a you know, clear view of getting our attention and making a point and you know, getting increasingly reckless. And that, of course, is something that Trump heard about from Barack Obama when he first came in and decided to do something about it. And of course, he did it in a way that uh, was maximized, maximized rather the showmanship aspect of it, you know, kind of outraged people in some respects about the going from one minute calling Kim Jong-un the little rocket man to the next moment, you know, having an evident bromance with him and, you know, seemingly throwing out um, a lot of the harder positions on North Korea. But, you know, he really did change that trajectory there. He's just, he wasn't obviously on the track for uh, concluding a major arms control agreement. It was the same with Iran. He wasn't really that interested in uh, regime change in Iran. Um, I mean, other people around him certainly were. But he was very much focused on trying to make sure that Iran did not develop a missile, uh, the intercontinental ballistic missile capacity. And he talked about that all the time. I mean, that was his focal point in, you know, wanting to apply sanctions and pull out of uh, the JCPOA, you know, the agreement that was supposed to be constraining Iran's development of uh, nuclear weapons. So there was a sort of a coherence in some respects of thought there, but a completely incoherent approach to it. And so in a more competent president who hadn't been so obsessed with, you know, how people were looking either at his relationships with Putin or Kim Jong-un or, you know, with, uh, you know, just Iran overall and some of the rhetoric that he had there, you know, might have been much more disciplined about figuring out, you know, what they were going to do. Um, you know, he was back and forth, back and forth under the JCPOA. He wasn't lined up with the people around him. He was constantly making uh, pronouncements at press conferences that had nothing to do with things that were being discussed with his cabinet because he wanted to be the centre of attention. 
And, you know, there are so many other issues like that. I mean, yes, he did want to create jobs and he did uh, open up the capacity for all kinds of jobs, small jobs in the, um, you know, the service sector, for example. But none of those jobs came with any lasting protections because his whole view was bolster up businesses, bolster up billionaires, and then they will kind of create jobs. It was a top-down view of job creation. He was implacably opposed to collective bargaining and unions. He wasn't really interested in, you know, giving people any social protection. So a lot of those jobs sort of disappeared, as we know, as soon as COVID hit and people had to go into, you know, basically into lockdown. And a lot of those service jobs, um, you know, people were then left without unemployment insurance and uh, and benefits. And then look at the pandemic. Um, I mean, the way that that was handled. It was all about him at all times and just in it was inconceivable for him to take advice from anyone and to do anything that might make him look politically weak. So he politicised masks instead of, you know, going out there and trying to encourage people to, to wear them. He does push forward on the vaccine, but at the same time, he doesn't rein in anti-vax um, promotion within, um, you know, the Republican Party. So at every turn, when you look at something where, OK, he could have done something or he's got kind of the right instinct, he undermined himself. So any different kind of Trump or a person in his position, you know, could have done things differently. But, you know, somebody using his charismatic approach, though, that populist approach, the kind of would-be autocrat with a bit more competence, then, you know, we really would be in trouble. Well, what does it say that it took someone as terrible as Trump to basically challenge what had become the bipartisan foreign policy consensus? I mean, as you mentioned you know, there had been these kind of totems um, in Washington, D.C., including among people at think tanks, um, where we, you know, I think for a while, uh, those of us in think tanks were maybe unwilling to challenge the elite consensus, in part because we were members of that elite. So there was a limit to how far we might go. And it took and it took someone who had a kind of fundamental disrespect of that world to just say, I don't care about any any of the prior assumptions. So for something like on, it didn't turn out well in my view, but something like making a deal with the Taliban, it's hard to imagine Obama or even Biden doing a similar kind of deal without concern to do domestic blowback and so on. But this is just all to say that um, how, I mean, how much of this is our own responsibility if we want, if we want to include ourselves in this group of the responsibility of technocrats or elites or so-called intellectuals who didn't actually do as much as they could have in the lead up to Trump to say something has gone fundamentally wrong with our country, both in domestic policy and foreign policy. Yeah, I mean, it is on all of us. Um, Trump is not the cause of everything. He is a symptom. He's a reflection of things that were going Going on, you know, for example, when um, in 2016 when he was elected, and you know, a lot of people said, "Well, he's not really elected." Vladimir Putin elected him, and the Russian security services—that was just a cop out of responsibility, because people couldn't explain to themselves why he was elected when he was elected by millions of people all the way across the United States. And in 2020, 11 million more people voted for him. And as you're saying, we were failing to recognise why that was the case, because frustration was mounting about the forever wars. Uh, they was, there was great disaffection um, toward the mainstream political parties, because he's not a Republican. He's somebody who just hijacked the Republican Party as a vehicle to get elected. There's great, you know, kind of frustration 
in the divisions that have emerged in the United States, not just in the cultural aspects or uh, the you know identity wars that we've um, uh, you know that we've all been consumed with over the last several years, but in geographic spatial differences. Obviously, the demography of the United States is changing very dramatically, and a lot of people you know are kind of uh, always in any setting feel uncomfortable with change when it's very rapid. We've got technological change. We've got the development of Facebook, which we've been hearing about with algorithms that are specifically designed for people to stoke outrage and to um, accentuate division because that makes money. And our political system is the same. Since the Citizens United ruling that money has basically the cachet literally of uh, free speech, we have super political action committees, super PACs running around throwing lots of money into candidates. And the more that you drag attract attention, the more outrageous you are sometimes, you know, the more um, high profile you are, like someone like Trump, the more money you can accrue. So everything in our system has been kind of flashing red hot, you know, towards this moment. And I think, you know, what Trump is the equivalent of is a massive heart attack. Um I mean, it's basically, you know, we've, the doctor's been telling us the whole time, God, you're smoking, you're drinking, your blood pressure's way off the charts, you know, you really shouldn't be doing this, you know, how about a little bit of exercise? And, you know, we've the, we, the patient, have paid no attention, just kept on with our slightly, you know, kind of dissolute ways. And so we've had this massive heart attack and we've survived, but we're not in the best of shape. And we're in that moment now about, well, what do we do about it? You know, kind of somehow we're still here you know teetering around but you know are we going to actually do what it takes to recover from this and that's coming I mean, that's what trump was to me he was a shock to the system you know he stress tested everything and we we had a heart attack so i mean your book uh as shadi alluded i mean it's 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 in many ways it's it's two books there's the the it's a memoir well well, maybe even three, a memoir of you growing yeah, up. yeah i think me- of it as three actually yeah. <laughs> the memoir of you growing up a memoir of you in the in the in the White House, and then and then uh, basically talking about what ails us in some ways, and trying to sort of uh, pull out of that. Um, I guess maybe the the question I'd ask you before we get into, I think maybe that 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 third part, which is connected to the first part uh, in many ways, um, is uh, how concerned are you now after the heart attack? I mean, you know, especially now as we're recording at this very moment uh, in the sort of public discourse, there's been a lot of writing about uh, the grave constitutional crisis. Uh, uh, Robert Kagan, I think, has written the definitive essay on this right now and, you know, is being talked around a lot about uh, what that, that basically we think that we've vanquished Trump, but really everything that brought him is still at work and we're, we're in grave danger going forward. How concerned are you uh, at the current moment? Um, or have you been basically similarly concerned ever since you got out and you're just sort of watching this happen? I don't know. Talk a little bit about that. Well, I would just say that my concerns have never been alleviated. Um, you know, obviously I and you know many of my other colleagues were fact witnesses of the impeachment trial. It turned out to be the first impeachment trial. Then there was a second uh, after the mob violence and the storming of the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. I mean, definitely um, a step up from the first impeachment trial, which you know was bad enough of itself about the president basically asking the leader of a foreign country to launch investigations into um, you know our own former vice president, now president of the United States and uh, and his son, um, a really kind of crazy use of uh, executive privilege in terms of 
trying to enlist a foreign power to interfere in uh, domestic elections. And then you're having, you know, basically a sitting president talk down our entire democratic and election system, perpetrate an enormous lie that he's actually won the election and the election has been stolen away from him and basically incite people to storm, you know, the uh, the legislature. I mean, this is, you know, makes your head explode. And since then, you know, we, we've seen just more things piling on top. The denial of what happened on January 6th, even by people whose lives are in danger during that moment, like Vice President Pence, um, the repudiation of things that people saw with their own eyes and that were unfolding on live television. I mean, there were just hours and hours and hours of um, film uh, and video recording in real time from the events of January 6th. And, you know, as you're saying, I mean, we're having a whole set of hearings uh, on Capitol Hill about this where you know, we're trying to understand exactly what transpired and led up uh, to that moment. And we also have uh, you know, President Trump continuing to say, you know, recently in a rally in Iowa, I mean, vast majority of his speech, his presentation was about how the election had been stolen from him, you know, basically saying that his supporters have to you know, fight to take the country back again. So these kinds of things have uh, have not stopped. Um, so, you know, I, I continue to be extraordinarily concerned. And, you know, the big question is, how are people going to speak out? And what are the people going to do about it? Because we have members of Congress um, in the Republican um, side of the aisle who are f- completely focused on preserving their own positions, because if they don't support Trump and they don't give credence to this lie... He's threatened to have other candidates run against them, his own chosen loyalists, and to you know make make, make sure that they're forced out of office. So you know, in a, many respects, not only did he sort of hijack the president's, you know, the during the presidential campaign in 2016, you know, the kind of Republican apparatus to become president. Now he's just hijacked the entire Republican Party of those people who are sort of still in there. And, you know, he's on the verge of hijacking the country. It, it's still, it's striking to me. I mean, one of the, the, the I think, uh, excellent balancing acts, it's not a balancing act, that's not the right way to put it, but I think the, the good perspective that you bring in the book as a Russia specialist is you're, you're very clear that Russia interfered in 2016. And yet, on the other hand, you're also very clear on the fact that clearly Trump was legitimate in, and, you know, had had really tapped into something to get elected. And you say that, you know, the, 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 his loss to Biden still proves to a large extent that, you know, Russia didn't cause this. He is us um, in so many ways. Um, I, I guess the, the, the question now um, that I think we're all struggling with is how do we, you say, you know, who's going to speak up against this? But the, the challenge for us, given that we're a democracy and that there is this sense of grievance out there is that how do i put it it's not that that at one point you know you, you talk about how trump keeps walking into traps set by putin and others and sort of you know uh gets ensnared in this but one way to look at russiagate itself the the whole uh media outrage that trump was basically installed by putin um is all of us collectively walking into a trap and, and yes, Trump himself yes, himself absolutely. benefits very much from this, right? Yeah. I, I tried to get that across yeah. on many, many occasions when, yeah. you know, kind of people would speak to me beforehand, you know, like basically saying we've walked into his trap. I mean, imagine, you know, how happy <laughs> many of the um, 
you know, members of the Russian security services were to basically have people in the United States, the highest levels, Hillary Clinton and others, you know, basically saying, well, the Russians elected Donald Trump. I mean, what an incredible victory for the, you know, political influence operation. That's exactly, you know, what they've always sort of set out to do during the Cold War. I mean, for anybody like myself who was watching this and knew a thing or two about, you know, Russian disinformation and influence operations, they succeeded beyond their wildest dreams because we played along with it. And I kept saying, you know, at the time, I mean, before I was, you know, basically um, asked to go in, that we should be super careful about, you know, kind of giving, you know, the, the, the basically lip service to this whole idea that uh, Putin elected Trump, that he was the Moscow candidate, that um, he was illegitimate because, you know, this was playing into Putin's hands, not just, as you said, into Trump's, which he did. Because, I mean, Trump can also say, well, look, you know, you guys called me illegitimate. You said that the election was stolen. That that's precisely what's what what yeah, I'm driving the first at. First time around, I'm just saying exactly the same thing. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. That's right to me. I mean, that's exactly right. And that and that's what's striking about this current moment is that now we're almost trapped in this sort of thing because yeah. because there is this illegitimacy question at the root of all of this. And now it's you know Trump. You said earlier on when we were talking that you know he's a really genius communicator in so many ways. He latches onto this, and now it's you know the big lie on the other side, and it's it's. Um, it's a really terrible predicament, which maybe lets us then talk about sort of, you know, I, the book then segues from this into talking about the, the larger pathologies of our of our polarization at this point. Um, I, I, maybe the, the question I'd ask you on that is, uh, again, it's, it's, it's a good solid third of the book is on this. And uh, you've done a lot of work thinking about this, again, reflecting through your own uh, uh, childhood and growing up and coming up in the world. Are you optimistic that we can tackle these things uh, through policy? Or uh, is this just all we can do in the interim as we try and figure out what to do about the larger conundrum? I think in terms of the policy, you know, the public policy aspects of this, I think we do know how to uh, how to deal with something like this, uh, particularly in terms of addressing the grievances and you know, the problems that are out there in the United States have been festering for some time because the Russians only use the material that they've been provided with. It's been always the case in influence operations. And it's not just the Russians, it's anybody else. Look, it's American political actors. They just use what's there, right? If somebody has a personal scandal, you know, and the, uh, there's another candidate running, um, you know, against them, they'll use that. If, uh, you know, for example, you look back over uh, America's history of relations with the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union was always emphasizing uh, racism in the United States and structural racism and Jim Crow, you know, before the civil rights movement and always at, on any, uh, at any point, the Soviet uh, Union and, and later Russia would highlight this. I mean, Putin in the press conference after the Geneva meeting with Joe Biden just couldn't resist, you know, taking a pot shot at US race relations again and also mentioning January 6th. They just, they work with what they've got. And so we have to really address this. There's an awful lot of fixing ourselves and we do know how to fix ourselves. It's the politics and the political will that's really, um, that's really absent here. And that's kind of that, I think that's the toughest bit. I'm more optimistic that we can mobilize people, you know, around the country to, you know, pull themselves together, you know, through kind of non-profit and public-private partnerships and things like this. But it's the politics at the very top. The biggest difficulty that we have is trying to persuade um, senior 
members of the Republican Party in Congress and the Senate and in state houses across the United States to basically decultify themselves. I mean, they're, they're part of a charismatic death cult around one individual. They've completely thrown ideology and everything out the window. And they, I mean, they sort of see it, but I, I think some of them convince themselves, well, if I leave the political stage, who's going to come in? You know, there'll be a Trump loyalist, you know. I'm the only person who's kind of like keeping all of uh, this together. But they, they are, thinking back on what, you know, Martin Indyk said to me, they are now part of the problem and they are the problem. Because they're too scared to repudiate him because they can't imagine themselves not being in power. So, but isn't there a fundamental question about what, so what drives American voters, American citizens? And if if we have an interpretation that looks at Americans and human beings more broadly as being focused on material factors, material deprivation, and that's a big theme in your book based on your upbringing in, in, um, in the coal mine country in the UK, in Bishop Auckland, um, and that that economic aspect is very much there and it ties different parts of the book together and if we start from that premise then it seems more promising because there are ways to alleviate material conditions one thing you talk about in the book is a marshall plan for america that several mayors have proposed but my concern would be that if if the problems go deeper and that they aren't fundamentally material in nature that they're almost cultural, one might say, racial, even psychic. It, it go, it's, it's almost like a metaphysical existential divide that can't really be quantified. So, you know, as, as political scientists, we might, we might be looking for, well, here's the way to address it from a technocratic standpoint. We have to address X, Y, and Z. And that sort of, you know, being in a think tank, that's part of what we do. But if it's more foundational, about who we are as a country, what it means to be American, things that are very tied up with people's own identity. And I think you do hint at this at various points when you talk about racial divides, but I think racial divides are only one part of of something quite larger. Um, That makes me, I mean, that would be an interpretation that I think would lead us on a more pessimistic route that policy fixes aren't really applicable here because these aren't policy problems. They're deeper. I think it's all of the above, actually. I don't think it's necessarily one or the other. There are deep policy problems that can be fixed. And then there is that intertwined aspect of an identity crisis, which often, you know, comes about at times of rapid change and um, especially of economic deprivation. I mean, we've seen this. Sorry, my dog is now growling in the background, came in when I wasn't looking. (laughs) I was like, what is that noise? Anyway, sorry about that. That's kind of weird. The dog obviously doesn't agree with me. Uh, But anyway, the, um, you know, if we look back, you know, through history and lots of other, you know, settings that both of you are very familiar with. You see those things kind of coming together. You have these periods of economic crisis or fast technological change or demographic change or you know any kind of events that are sort of turning people's you know, sense of the predictability of their lives, the sort of certainty of the future on its heads. Um, I talk about this in the book, you know, picking up on some of the uh, thinking of the kind of great um, scholar Fritz Stern, who wrote a lot about Germany in the 1930s, and he talks about the sense of cultural despair 
that definitely came out, that kind of sense of who am I, we've kind of lost this, came out of these rapidly changing circumstances. And, you know, you do have to tackle that as well through um, all kinds of ways that are not very satisfying. There's no silver bullet there. There's an awful lot of things you have to do of encouraging, you know, as we've seen in other um, settings, dialogues on a kind of a local, national community, you know, kind of you name it uh, basis, trying to get people engaged in shared endeavours. I mean, we have a lot of colleagues at Brookings and elsewhere who are talking about public service. You've got to go, you know, get people out there you're moving across the country trying to, you know, engage with people. I've often thought we need a kind of Team America, a kind of... Uh, foreign service equivalent you know, that we used to have with the public uh, uh, information service to kind of go out and fan out across America trying to engage with people so that DC and the, the whole Washington area doesn't seem like such an alien place there's no quick fix for that kind of thing unfortunately and that's kind of where there is of course a lot of room for pessimism because it's very hard for the majority of people who you know really want to focus on how we can improve the United States, how we can just kind of make the place a better place for all of us. We all want to find ourselves in a shared endeavour to fend off the vociferous minorities that are you know, making the most noise and stirring everything up. That's always the dilemma. So I think it's going to take an awful lot of you know, constant attention. It's basically, you know, uh, anyway, I mean, I, I am optimistic and also pessimistic simultaneously, which is a difficult position to be in. I guess, you know, I'm more optimistic about what I see around me in America and knowing that we know how to fix this and you know, we can get a lot of people engaged. But I'm very pessimistic about that surface area of things where people hang on to identities that you know, really become quite divisive. If the goal is to build a kind of Team America and engage in a deeper substantive dialogue with our fellow citizens – I think one thing that a lot of us are grappling with is who is beyond the pale. Because when, when we engage, when we, we tend to, for it to be useful, we have to engage with people who disagree with us and, and they may even be our enemies or adversaries in some ways. Um, and so when it comes to right-wing populists, Trump supporters, and obviously this has analogs in other countries, to what extent do we... Um, sit down or or appear with um, right wing, not fascists, maybe let's say fascists are out, but people who might be perceived as getting very close to that line. That to me seems like a very tough one. And one that I think we as a broader society, there's a lot of disagreement around that. Um, you know, even something as simple as does one appear on Fox News is now a contentious question or um you know, as you might know, I went. You know, when I went to Germany and interviewed um, AFD officials yeah. and parliamentarians. Yeah. Um, so that that's the for, for listeners the the far right uh, nationalist party in Germany. So I think there's a lot of different ways to kind of talk about this or look at this. I think if we want to talk about um, parts of the left side of the spectrum, what might be called uh, the more, uh, if you will, woke side. Sometimes, you know, anyone who um, is perceived as not reaching a certain standard on anti-racism is seen as some, someone you shouldn't engage with because they're hopeless. So it's not even about being racist or not. It's just about, are you on our team? So I'm curious, like, where would you, where do you think the line should be on that if we are trying to talk to people who we disagree with? 
Well, look, I think there's a lot of reconnaissance that still has to be done on this, a lot more kind of uh, talking about the subject, although, you know, we'll have to speed it up a bit given, you know, the uh, dire need of uh, making some progress. But I think there's a lot of um, lessons that we can bring back from other settings. Um, when I was listening, you know, to you, Shadi, I was also thinking about that exercise that you undertook. Um, there are a number of other people that, you know, we know scholars who have gone talking to terrorists in the Middle East and trying to kind of understand their perspectives. And there was a lot of work that was done in Ireland, Northern Ireland, um, uh, with the IRA, uh, the um, the um, Irish Republican Army, and people who supported them and were part of it, you know, in the run-up to the Good Friday Accords, the peace process that the United States was very much part of as well. And, you know, there's a lot of lessons from those kinds of settings. I mean, we're just used in the United States to, you know, basically doing this abroad. Um, you know, some of the programs like for Seeds of Peace in uh, the Middle East with um, Israelis and Palestinians and a lot of questions are being asked there from both sides about, you know, who they should talk to. You know, we've had debates about should you talk to Hamas, for example? You know, or what do you do with, you know, the kind of the far-right reactionary um, Israeli uh, groups as well. So, I mean, this is the kind of thing where, you know, honestly, I, I sort of feel like we need a little bit of assistance from the outside, all the places that we've been helping in the past to try to kind of come to terms with their own internal dilemmas. We could do with some of them coming back and giving us a bit of assistance. We need a kind of a George Mitchell approach, George Mitchell being the senator, you know, of course, who helped to um, negotiate the Good Friday uh, agreements in, um, in Ireland, uh, for Northern Ireland, and also, you know, try to affect some reconciliation between Northern Irish and um, Irish politicians. You know, where else have you know we been effective in that regard? That's probably one of the best successes that the United States had in terms of intervention. It's of course been turned on its head by Brexit and the, you know, UK government removing the important framework of the European Union that helped uh, make that possible. But you know, there are, there are lots of examples around the world that we should pay attention to because look, if people were coming in with an intervention now in the United States, and it may only be a matter of time before some of our European counterparts do that because there's increasing alarm you know, among our allies about what the heck is going on in the United States, that would be what they'd advise us to do. They'd be trying to kind of come in and mediate. You know what struck me, uh, Fiona, and maybe we can then uh, talk a little bit. You just mentioned Brexit. Um, and again, uh, your experience, your hometown in the Northeast. Um, paradoxically, I don't know how many years ago this was now, probably around three years ago, um, I ended up on a trip uh, with uh, my colleague at the time, Jeff Gedman, who was researching a book on AFD. And we were in Saxony. Uh, around Dresden. And I remember we went to a, a small town outside of Dresden called, uh, I think it was called Bischofsverde, which means Bishop's Will. And I, I thought of it as I was reading <laughs> your account uh, because your hometown's uh, Bishop Auckland. So, you know, right. it, 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 it triggered that thought. Fascinating. Uh, they had a, a member of the Bundestag there, an AFD member, a law and order guy, ex-cop, um, and uh, we went to a local sort of town hall that he was holding there in this small town outside of Dresden, which we drove into Friday night, I believe, uh, nearly deserted. But, you know, this is in former East Germany, um, brand new. Everything, the, the main square was, was fixed. I think they had told us that there was some factory in the, in the, the, uh, the periphery there. So there were jobs, some jobs, some perhaps even decent jobs there. But 
the the town center was mostly abandoned, and we went into this small little, basically in this hotel, uh, a little hall in the back of the hotel where a couple of its constituents were, um, mostly men, a couple of older, their wives perhaps, um, but mostly men there, uh, and all very supportive of the AFD guy, who was basically giving an economic message. What struck me about that sort of little digression, if you forgive me there, is that, you know, I mean, one of the the things that the Germans, I think, did very well, uh, or at least they tried to do very well in the integrations, they lavished a lot of uh, money onto these sorts of places that were suffering this kind of dislocation. And the thing we kept hearing in in in, uh, in Saxony traveling around and talking to people was, in fact, this this question of brain drain that that a lot of people identified, that all the young people, as soon as they could, as soon as the opportunity came and the education, they just moved out and never came mm-hmm. back. And that this, in many ways, was fueling this kind of drive towards uh, right-wing populist politics, specifically in Germany. So, I mean, maybe you can, you can talk a little bit about um, now, you know, when you go back home, um, and you, you mentioned in the book, in fact, that, that uh, you know, part of the so-called red wall crumbling after Brexit that, you know, your hometown has turned Tory for the first time, uh, used to be a, 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 a bastion of, of, uh, of, of the Labour Party. Um, how is that playing out? How are, how are politics playing out in, in, uh, in Britain right now? Uh, and, and again, this, this question of, again, you, 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 allude, you, you point to some, some efforts at, at, at revitalizing your hometown. Um, any lessons learned there? Anything uh, you know to be particularly happy with? Cautionary tales? I don't know. Just well, go with I, I what think you you've like. Put, I think you've put your finger on it um, uh, exactly there. Um, it's very similar with Germany. Um, you know, the comparison between the sort of north of England and the south of England and east and west Germany um, is very evident for anybody who knows both of these settings. And... Um, you know, very similar also here to the United States and, you know, the so-called Rust Belt parts of the Midwest that have lost their manufacturing base. I mean, there's so much, you know, research showing how education, educational attainment has become the new class divide. And it's the same in the UK and in the United States that a lot of the parts of the country that got hollowed out by deindustrialization have got very low levels of educational attainment, people not properly finishing high school, certainly not going on to any kind of two or four year college equivalent or, you know, really finding a hard time to get further education in terms of qualifications and new skills and, you know, then finding themselves out of the workforce. And as you're saying, people from those areas that then go off to college and get a qualification moving out, basically... Um, then amplifying the fact that these places are filled with people with with lower qualification attainment than the rest of the country, which in turn means that no business comes in, and you know it, it becomes extraordinarily problematic, and you need greater greater intervention. And I think there are lessons from Germany in a different way. I mean, Germany actually shows the same perils. There's also a kind of a north south divide in Germany too, uh, but the the Germans have been extremely good at creating you know, a whole system, I mean, over decades of uh, educational establishments that are focused on giving people apprenticeships in the manufacturing sector as well. It's not just all elite uh, educational institutions and getting people trained and, you know, really helping people move on to 
you know, finding uh, finding jobs and having the qualifications for this. And I think under the new German government, we're seeing a lot more discussion about this. It's one of the hallmarks of the SPD, the you know the German uh, Social Democrats who have uh, come in, you know, to power against you know the backdrop of Chancellor. Uh, Angela Merkel and the CDU leaving the picture for the first time in you know, a couple of decades. So, I mean, there's lots of lessons from there, um, just as you said, about this kind of pumping money in, you know, trying to emphasize culture and uh, tourist uh, activities in places like Dresden, you know, which have been completely and utterly uh, revamped. Um, you know, and one thing actually, though, that happened during Brexit that I just wanted to flag from something you said earlier was people started to realize that Brexit was the new cleavage in the United Kingdom. People aren't so acutely partisan in the way that they are in the US, where when you say to somebody, who are you? They'll say whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, which is actually kind of bizarre. (laughs) You say, who are you? That's your primary identification. But for a period in Britain, the the primary identification was I'm a Brexiteer or I'm a Remainer, you know, somebody who wanted to remain in the European Union. And so there was a very similar phenomenon. People's families were ripped apart by it. People wouldn't speak to their relatives, but similar to here, people voting Democratic or Republican. And there was an effort made to kind of reconcile people in small towns across Britain and take some people, you know, from different parts who had different views in and have kind of town halls and discussions. And you also remember in France, after the Yellow Vest movement, and there was so much upheaval and uproar in France about some of the reforms that uh, Emmanuel Macron did, he went on a town hall speaking to her you know, basically to listen uh, to people for hours on end about their grievances and to respond to it. And it did have, you know, some pretty positive effect in the in, in the in the moment. I'm not sure how much of the policies that he was thinking about implementing after that actually did get uh, put into place. But that act of going around the country and talking to people in town halls, the, pr- the president himself and listening to people for hours on end had a very salutary effect. So you can kind of see that there are things that we could be doing. But, you know, right now, you know, a lot of our Congress people seem under siege. They're just so busy fighting with each other and trying to kind of um, have wins and score points for their side over the other side, even for the various factions within the uh, the Democratic Party, for example, not just you know, fighting with the Republicans, that there isn't that focus on how do we all come together. So I'm sort of thinking that, you know, maybe, again, public-private partnerships, non-profits, other kind of groups, think tanks, you know, like Brookings and others, things like this podcast. This is where we, we need to start. We need to start having these discussions and start them pretty soon. And again, taking these lessons out from other places. And I do think there's a lot we can learn from Germany as well. Yeah, and and on that note, as we kind of close up, uh, you know, there are obviously uh, many Fiona fans out there. And I should also mention that, uh, my mom, I'm actually home in Pennsylvania now, and my mom was like totally unprompted. She had no prior knowledge. Just the other day, she's like, hey, Shady, you know who you should have on the podcast? I just heard her on uh, Fresh Air. Um, Fiona Hill, she's your colleague, isn't she? She's at Brookings, too. And I'm like, mom, it's really funny you mentioned that. She's like slated to be our next guest in a couple of days. So anyway, for Yeah, well, for my best pe- to your mom, Shady. Yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> But like for people, you know, a lot of people are probably curious, I mean, what's next? You've obviously been through a lot, I suppose, is one way of putting it the last couple of years. I'm sure it was exhausting in a number of ways. Um, but you did talk about how you are still optimistic about certain things. I mean, based on what you're willing to tell us that sort of you're comfortable sharing publicly, what do you really want to focus your time? Obviously, there's a number of different directions you can go in. 
Um, what are you most excited about? Well, I think some of the things that we've been talking about here is, you know, how can I work with others to try to mobilize some response to all of this? I mean, I don't think, you know, running for political office is the solution. Um, you know, I think we've found how much the, the big money in our politics is sort of perverting the discourse. But the, I think there's a lot of things that can be done at a sort of a grassroots or an intermediate level. There are lots of networks out there. Look, I mean, at Brookings, all of our colleagues, they've got so many great ideas on the public policy front. I mean, one thing in the book was, you know, a lot of the work that I was highlighting was from the Brookings Institution. So how can we translate some of this into action? How can we learn from other places? I just, you know, mentioned Germany, for example, because Dami talked about that in your experiences there. But, you know, how can we bring some of the lessons from overseas, the kind of things that we might have been doing, you know, in the foreign policy realm back home to the United States um, for some assistance? And I do think that this could be part of the transatlantic agenda as well, because our European allies are really worried about us. I mean, they're looking on the, you know, from the outside in, uh, into here and seeing a lot of things that have happened in their past as well. And, you know, deeply worried that uh, the United States is heading in the kinds of dangerous directions that European politics has in historical periods. So I'm, you know, basically trying to figure it out. I mean, I felt the most important thing was to try to write the book, you know, to basically lay out um, the thesis and also some of the ideas about how one might have to tackle it. Now the issue is really doing something and how best to do that. Yeah, great. So I haven't figured it all out yet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, neither have we, so I guess we're in the same boat on that. (laughs) But thanks so much for joining us, Fiona. Great to have you and congrats again on the book. Yeah. Oh, thanks so much. It's really great to be here, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Fiona. Bye-bye. Great.